Okay, let's turn to Isaiah 21. <clears throat> Isaiah 21. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, as we come to your word again this evening, Lord, I pray that you would bless our time. May your word instruct us. May we see you and your ways and may we be impacted and changed. May you speak through your word tonight, I pray, Lord. And may your word be clear to us. May your spirit that inspired this word illuminate it in our hearts for us, that we might see your glory and that we might glorify your name. Amen. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> we're in Isaiah 21. Well, <clears throat> when we come to Isaiah 21, we're coming to a bit of a new section. And so I just want to recap <clears throat> as it were, the main sections in the book of Isaiah, very quickly as we start. And I think that would be helpful um, if, uh, if we, you haven't been here for many of these. Um, the first five chapters of Isaiah are general prophecies that serve as a foundation for the main themes of the book of Isaiah. It is very much a, a foundational section looking at the key issues, none less than the issue of idolatry in the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 6 is where we have the chronological beginning. The chronological beginning being the calling of Isaiah. And we're told specifically in the year that King Uzziah died. And we have a specific time given to us that we know when this happened. That chapter obviously stands alone, and in chapter 7 we're told, in the days of Ahaz. And we're given again a specific period of time, and then that begins what is known as the book of Emmanuel. And we have this, these prophecies that are given, and the backdrop of it all is King Ahaz. And King Ahaz is looking to trust in the superpower of his day, the nation of Assyria. He is uh, being pressured by the northern kingdom of Israel and by Syria to form a coalition against Assyria. And Ahaz, or king of Judah, a wicked king, he decides that rather than trusting in Israel and, Judah, uh, Israel and Syria, he's going to trust in Assyria. Now, Isaiah is told to go and bring a message to him because the message of Isaiah is simply this. You shouldn't be trusting in Israel and Syria, and nor should you be trusting in Assyria. You should be trusting in me. And that really is the main theme. And it's in that context that assurances are given to the house of David, the, the prophecy of the virgin birth, the prophecy of the coming Messiah, and that Israel will be a light to the nations. And this takes us through that whole section to the end of chapter 12, with the salvation of the Lord. Then in chapter 13, we started a whole new section. And if you look at chapter 13 and verse 1, you'll see it said the oracle concerning Babylon. And there was this oracle, literally burden, a prophecy that was a burden upon Isaiah that he was to give that was a burden concerning Babylon. Now, we're back in Babylon tonight, so this is relevant. Okay, 
Babylon at that time was a small nation. It was a small nation that was known for, uh, was associated with the sea and it was associated with the wilderness. And Babylon was a nation, and Babylon are, are the, the prophecies concerning Babylon come in chapters 13 and 14. And the reason he deals with Babylon to the, to the, 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 the inhabitants of Judah at that time is going to seem strange. Well, we're not really worried about Babylon. Who's Babylon? They're, they're no big deal right now. Far more pressing is Syria. And, and more pressing than Syria, ultimately, is this great superpower that's swallowing up all the other nations, and that's Assyria. These are the concerns. And yet Isaiah, he started in chapters 13 and 14, this series of oracles about the nations. He begins with Babylon. Why does he begin with Babylon? The clue comes in the timing of this oracle. Again and again and again, we're told about the day of the Lord. Chapter 13 and verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. Verse 9, behold, the day of the Lord comes. And there are these constant references to the Lord's day. And we saw all sorts of things about Babylon and Babylon's leader. Babylon's leader is the one that we know from the book of Revelation as the Antichrist. And because it is set in the Lord's day, the day of the Lord, this end time period of judgment and then restoration, that what Isaiah was doing with all of these oracles to the nations, he's essentially saying, at the time of Ahaz, don't trust the nations. Why don't you trust the nations? Because this is what's going to happen to them all. And so he starts at the end. And in the last days, the greatest nation, the nation that is the superpower of that day, the nation that encompasses all other nations, the nation that rules the whole world, the nation that is opposed to God, is Babylon. And so he begins with Babylon. And he brings the end of Babylon to prophecy by talking about what's going to happen in the Lord's day. Then at the end of chapter 14, there's the oracle of the Philistines, concerning Philistine. Then there is the oracle uh, to Moab in chapters 15 and 16. There's the oracle to Damascus, that's the capital of Syria, which is more pressing, and that's in chapter 17. Chapter 18... Ironically, and I mentioned this at the time, most Bibles have the heading, an oracle against Cush. But there is no oracle in chapter 18. It's a continuation of Damascus that affects the land of Cush, the land of the Ethiopians. And then in chapter 19, we have an oracle concerning Egypt. And that is, uh, is where we end it. And all of this uh, goes on and is happening. And ultimately... What happens here is that this, uh, this nation, these nations are being judged, but they're being judged in the last days. The expression in that day is repeated in each of these oracles again and again and again and again. And then at the very end, it deals a little bit with Egypt and Assyria. And Assyria is the one they really wanted to know about. And Assyria, they're told about um, 
they're told about at the very end, that there is this oracle concerning Assyria that happens in chapter 14, sorry, before the Philistines. And so God says, here's what's going to happen with the nation that you need to know about, and here's gonna, what's going to happen about the nation you care about. And then here's all these other nations, and then he ends with Egypt and Assyria again, and that's all of the oracles of all of the nations that's going to happen to them in that day. Okay? Don't trust them. Why don't you trust them? Because at the end, God is going to bring them all down. <clears throat> then last week, we're in chapter 20. And chapter 20 was completely different. It started with, in the year, and then we have a specific date again. And that takes us back to what happened in chapter 7, what happened in chapter 6. And so it kind of structurally ends the oracles to all of those nations. And it's a very short chapter. It's only five verses. We, we dealt with that last time. But then when we come to chapter 21, look what happens. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. We're back to oracles again. Has he just had a little break? Did he just feel a need to kind of have a little pause and a drink of water or something? Did he just have something he wanted to slot into the middle? What's going on? Well, what happened was he completed the section of the oracles. They were all oracles about what were going to happen to these nations that either have been or will be significant in Israel's history and how all of them will be brought under the might of the Lord of the nations, the God of all, the God of Israel, Yahweh. And in the end, God will be conqueror over them all. Now, in this new section of oracles in chapter 21, we're going to find that something is missing in that day. It's not about the last days anymore. This next section of oracles are structurally very different. They're telling us what's going to happen, not in the distant future, not in the last days, but in the near future. So that's con contextually what we're dealing with here now. So we're starting a whole new section that's dealing with oracles concerning the nations again. Don't trust them. God's going to conquer them in the end. But at the same time, don't trust them now. I mean, you could be like, well, I know God's going to bring judgment down on Assyria in the end. But you know, right now, we, we need a bit of help. And if they're going to be good for five or ten years, then maybe we can trust them now and then not trust them in the last days. <clears throat> that is now being dealt with, because now we're going to have prophecies concerning their near future. So, that's what we're looking at. Isaiah 21, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. The wilderness of the sea is a reference to uh, Babylon again. Babylon is a central theme of Isaiah. He's not even nearly finished with Babylon. In fact, this section serves as a prelude to the destruction of Babylon in the near future that he deals with at length in chapters 43 through 48. And we're going to see in chapter 23 that the wilderness is referencing Babylon. We see it later in Revelation chapter 17 it references Babylon and the many waters speak of Babylon in not just Revelation but the book of Jeremiah as well. And we will see that this wilderness of the sea <coughs> is a reference to Babylon and we've already had some links there. Do you remember when I spoke to you about Babylon, when we dealt with chapters 13 and 14, what's going to happen to Babylon in the kingdom? 
Other nations will be destroyed, but there might be a remnant that the nations will end up worshipping Yahweh. But what's going to happen to the geographical region of Babylon in the last days? It's going to be desolate. There will be no life other than demonic creatures. It will be a prison for demons, for demonic entities who are in somehow in human form. You read the book of Revelation, you'll see a whole bunch of demons taking physical form. So I said human form, physical form. Um, and there will be a prison for them during the period of the kingdom um, that will happen. And we saw that in chapters 13 and 14. And throughout scripture, the wilderness and the creatures within it are used symbolically of demons. And the sea and the scary creatures within the sea are used symbolically of demons. One of the places that we see this most commonly is in the book of Job. <laughs> Sorry, I just had my wife mouthing to me, Job. <laughs> it's here in my notes, I got it. <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> so yes, the book of Job. The book of Job is... Um, is probably the first book of the Bible that was actually written down. Genesis obviously pre-existed in various forms, but the final form of Genesis that was completed as we know it, finishing off with the story of Joseph, um, that that form of Genesis may have uh, been subsequent to the form of Job that we have. Job is a very, very early book. And already in the book of Job, there is this association with these places both on land and in sea, the deep sea, the dry land, <coughs> places that were uninhabitable mostly, and the, the frightening creatures who lived there were symbolically used to speak of demons, to speak of what we think of as demons, but what in that day they typically thought of as gods. Remember, gods would have been a term they used for spiritual beings that would have encompassed what we speak of as demons. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And so when we have Babylon in chapters 13 and 14 having links to demons, when we have the leader of Babylon in chapter 14 being spoken of as being essentially Satan... Um, as we spoke about when we were there, then for Babylon to be referred to as the wilderness of the sea is something that not only is geographically fitting and used elsewhere, it has huge theological implications. Theological implications that were in place centuries before the time of Isaiah. Hence my reference to Job. And my wife's reference to Job. Now, Fortunately for both of us, Isaiah is, had a reference to Job already for us so that we would get that connection. Look at the very next phrase in verse 1. As whirlwinds in the Negeb sweep on, it comes from the wilderness from a terrible land. And so there would be these dry winds that came from the south, came from Arabia, and it would come up and they were hot and they were dry, and they were often very violent and very damaging. It is often translated, as it is here, as whirlwinds. Anyone know where we've come across these whirlwinds before? The book of Job. The book of Job. It's mentioned in the book of Job, chapter 1, and in Job 37. And the whirlwinds of Job are hugely significant 
theologically in the book of Job, okay? So, can we just understand, I'm trying to put all this together for you. The wilderness is theologically significant, Job. The sea is theologically significant, Job. Why are they theologically significant? Bad, negative, Elohim, spirit being, demons. The whirlwinds are significant in the book of Job. Why are the whirlwinds significant? Job chapter 1, Job's family and his, his possessions and his empire, if you like, were destroyed. His children were killed by whirlwinds. And then... He goes through all of his turmoil, he goes through all of his struggle, he goes through all of his pain, he goes through all of his anguish, this fighting, this wrestling with God. And then finally, probably about a year later, geographically the same time of year that those whirlwinds would come, God shows up in a whirlwind. Job 37. God in chapter 37 of Job, does something absolutely shocking, absolutely stunning, and theologically very significant. He reveals himself to be the sovereign one who allowed all things to happen. And so, here we have an oracle concerning the most demonic nation that ever has and ever will exist in human history, Babylon. And what's going to happen to Babylon? A whirlwind is going to sweep up into it. God is sovereign even over the nation of demons. Do you see how much is attached to that, those expressions? And it all comes from the book of Job. And so, this vision is a stern vision. The oracle is a stern vision that Isaiah has. And he has this vision that is, that is stern. And initially you might think, okay, well that's a hard vision, some versions will say. A a meaning that this is, what, something hard to understand? Well, it's pretty simple compared to chapter 18, if you recall that. Maybe it means that it's a particularly difficult vision in the sense of the judgment is tough. Well, back in chapter 14, they were... Were, um, he was telling them that they were going to be utterly destroyed and there would be a desolate nation and their land would become a prison for demons for the, for the duration of the kingdom. So no, I think he can deliver hard messages. So what does this mean? You're going to have to wait a few verses to find out. But let's just note for now that it's a stern vision. And what he says then is this. This is the vision that Isaiah is given concerning Babylon. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. I get, I get it, the traitor betrays. Why not just say the betrayer betrays? The destroyer destroys. That would kind of fit more happily, wouldn't it? But anyway, you get the point. They do what they are. There's two issues here, in a sense. There's an internal issue that they are traitors, the destroyers. Uh, the, uh, sorry, they're traitors internally, and so externally they are destroyers, and so they destroy. They do what they do. Who is the traitor who betrays? Who is the destroyer that destroys? Well, that's debatable. It could well be Babylon that's being referred to here, the judgments against them. On the other hand, it could refer to Elam and Media, which are the nations are listed in the next half of the verse. Um, my personal interpretation, though it's not 
hugely important for what it's worth, is I think that the, the traitor that betrays is Babylon and the destroyer that destroys is Babylon. I think that that does refer to Babylon, the oracles against them. And of course, they are associated like nobody else is with Satan. And Satan is the betrayer and the destroyer, and he is the liar. So that fits very well. And it is to that nation that is being judged for those reasons that God gives the command, go up Elam. Elam, as you will see elsewhere, Genesis 10, Genesis 14, um, the Elam is also known as Persia. Go up Persia, lay siege media. This is the Medes and the Persians, two separate nations that came together in a confederacy, as it were. And he says, all the sighing she has caused, that would be a reference to Babylon, I bring to an end. God the whirlwind is bringing to an end in his sovereignty the destruction of Babylon. He's bringing to an end the destruction that they do by destroying them. And how is he going to do it? He's going to do it through Elam and Media, through the Medes and Persians. And Isaiah... Um, so, so, yeah, God is sovereign, and he is sovereignly using those nations to bring down Babylon. Now, you haven't got to be a big Bible scholar. You just have to have read the book of Daniel a couple of times. And you know that when the, historically what happened is that Babylon, a small nation at this time, becomes a greater, larger nation, takes out the Assyrians, which is what they were worried about at this point, and then comes down and sweeps over and does what the Assyrians could never do, which is conquer Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, and they took the Jewish people into exile into Babylon. And then while they were there in Babylon, they themselves were conquered by the Medo-Persians. Daniel chapter 5. Now, this, by the way, just as an aside, is when all the liberal scholars read this stuff and say, well, Isaiah couldn't have written this. Why could Isaiah not have written this? Well, Isaiah was writing in, in this century, right? Well, this stuff that he's describing happened much later, right? So he must have been written by someone much later. You get that Isaiah was a prophet, right? That he prophesied stuff that hadn't happened that was good. But he got it all right. That's what prophets do. Honest to God, that is the state of much of modern day academic scholarship. Just a warning to you. But yes, Isaiah prophesied something that then happened a very short, relatively, period of time later. Now, verse 3 is where we get to the concept of this vision being a hard, stern, difficult vision. He says, therefore, my loins are filled with anguish. That's basically referring to his insides and his inner being. And it is basically saying that he is having... Um, internal pain and then there is this anguish pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor Isaiah when he has this vision doesn't just see what's going on he doesn't just hear what's going on he feels what's going on he feels the destruction he is in some form of cramping perhaps uh, full of contortion, 
He is in internal pain and he really can't function. He says, I'm bowed down so I cannot hear. The pain is such that he's unable to hear. I am dismayed so I cannot see. He's so troubled by what happens that he can't see anymore. I always sometimes say that I have to live through the sermons I preach. And this week, I had some of the worst toothache I've ever had in my entire life. And I tell you, when you, when you get a pain that's so bad, it feels like someone's stabbing you in the side of your head. It doesn't matter what anyone else says to you. Or it doesn't matter if someone gives you instructions. The, 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 you know, it's, I can go to this room and I can take this pill or I can go and do this treatment or I can do this for myself, but you can't move. You can't think. You can't function. It's like your entire body is frozen. That's Isaiah here. He's contorted. He's cramping. He's, I, I'm picturing him sort of all balled up in the fetal position. And he's in agony and he's in pain. And he can't think and he can't see and he can't hear anymore. He's seeing this vision and now he's feeling this vision. This is why I think it's referred to in verse 2 as a stern vision. And what he then says is, in verse 4, My heart staggers, horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. In other words, he says this. He says, this is what we wanted. We wanted the destruction of Babylon. We wanted Babylon judged, right? He's there. I mean, obviously Babylon is, the rise of Babylon is still future, but he's there and he's seeing it. And in a vision, he's seeing, yeah, this is good. Babylon's going down. And then suddenly he feels the enormity of God's judgment. He feels it like he's there experiencing it. And he's saying this, <coughs> this twilight, the, the end of darkness, that was wanted has now become a time of trembling. I think that tells us two things. Firstly, it tells us we want to be careful about wishing judgment on anyone or anything. People suck. I mean, let's be frank. There are lots of nasty people out there. And it's so hard for us to hold back from the quoting of psalms that reference the breaking of teeth, for example, and turning instead to Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The model of our, of our Lord and Saviour. And I think we forget how hard God's judgment is. We forget how great suffering is. One of the things that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians is that when we suffer, we, we inherit, as it were, a ministry of encouragement to those who are in suffering. That God allows us to go through tough stuff so that when other people go through tough stuff, we can be alongside them and we can encourage them and uplift them in the midst of their suffering. And I think that suffering does two things to people. And which road it sends you on is really up to you. Some people suffer and they become incredibly bitter people. Suffering just destroys them. Not, that, that what is done to them doesn't just destroy them there and then. It causes them to self-destruct for years and years and years and years, and often for the rest of their lives. 
Bitterness can destroy a person. But other people, suffering will send them on a road of empathy where their feeling of suffering is such that they don't want anyone else to suffer. And I think one of the things going on here is simply this, is that Isaiah is being reminded of how horrible suffering is. He's not just seeing it. He's not just hearing it. He's not just watching it on a screen, so to speak. He's feeling it. But I think there is also, secondly, a prophetic uh, point here, and that is this, that the end of Babylonian authority doesn't mean freedom for the Jewish people. They simply come under the rule of the medium, medium Persian Empire. That's what happens. And again, we can read that in the book of Daniel. Now, the nature of this destruction of Babylon, the, na the nature of the Medo-Persian conquering of Babylon is spelled out to us in more detail from verse 5. They prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat and they drink. In Daniel chapter 5, that's exactly what you see. You see there being... And uh, in the feast of Belshazzar, the, the, the famous feast there, that they are basically there enjoying feasts and they're using cups that they stole from the Jewish temple to celebrate and feast with, uh, and, and to worship their gods. And there they are feasting when their destruction comes. And that is indicated in the second half of verse 5 when there is this call to war. Arise, O princes. Arise is a word that you tend to see used in scripture when someone's asleep. And that's what's going on here. The Babylonians, well, they're awake, kind of, probably a little bit worse for wear, but they're drinking and they're celebrating and they're feasting and they're eating. They're vaguely conscious, but in another sense, they're completely asleep. They think that they're the big nation. They think no one's going to trouble them. They think no one's going to attack them. They think no one's going to get them. They think they're perfectly strong and they think they're perfectly safe. Their pride, the thing that they were taught about through their previous king, Nebuchadnezzar, their pride had not left them. And their pride brings them down. And so they're called to arise. Princes refers to their, to their military leaders. And they're to told to oil the shield. Now that's significant. A shield would be oiled so that when the shield was struck by blows of swords, that the swords would sort of slip off the shield. <coughs> that there wouldn't be as much damage that was caused. That, uh, that the swords would, would, would slip off. Pardon me. The swords would slip off. But the thing about the oiling of the shields is that's not what you do when you're about to go into battle. That's what you do first in preparation. You would oil the shields and then you get, do all the other things. Get your belt on, your boots on, get all your armor together. The oiling of the shields is something that was done in preparation beforehand. The shields were kept oiled like we would keep a, a full tank of fuel in our cars so we're ready to rumble, yeah? That kind of thing. It's like, oh, well, we've we got to rush off early to do a big road trip. 
and it, there's no fuel in the car. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to go and fill up the night before. You want to be ready to go. That's what the oiling of the shields is symbolic of. They weren't ready for a fight. They're feasting. They're drunk. They're gluttons. They're enjoying their success rather than being ready to defend their success. They were totally unprepared. And so in verse 6, there is a watchman that is appointed. For thus said the Lord, Adonai to me, go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Okay. So let's get a picture of what's happening here. We have the Babylonians who are feasting. Tables and rugs and they're, they're, they're drinking away. And the, the warning to them is to oil the sheaths, shields and get ready. But they're not. And then there is this watchman that is put to watch out. And he's specifically asked to watch out for riders. And the horsemen are going to come in pairs. This seems to be symbolic of the two nations, the Medes and the Persians, side by side. And then it says this. Riders on donkeys and riders on camels. Now this is why the liberal scholars have such problems with Isaiah and his accuracy. No one ever went to war on camels and donkeys. It just didn't happen. You went to war on horses, right? Not camels and donkeys. Well, at least you didn't until Cyrus came ruler of the Medo-Persians. And he would set camels and donkeys into the midst of the enemies and it would confuse them. And then they come in with more camels and donkeys and they conquer the enemy. It was a tactic that worked because nobody expected it. I mean, if you knew it was coming, it's fairly simple. Oh, look, there's some donkeys and camels. The Medo-Persians are attacking quick, you know. But initially, it worked as a trick. It worked as something uh, that was uh, a surprise to people. They didn't know what to do. They were unexpected. What are these camels doing running around here? And that would put people in disarray and leave them vulnerable to attack. It was a tactic that was first ever applied by Cyrus of the Medo-Persians. Prophesied by Isaiah centuries in advance. Isn't that astonishing? And so the watchman is told to keep an eye out for horsemen, specifically those riding on donkeys and camels. And he said, let him, this is the watchman, let the watchman listen diligently, very, very diligently. And the idea of this very diligently is that he's, he's listening out, he's waiting, he's watching, and he's like, I can't hear anything yet, I can't, I can't see anything, there's, no, there's nothing here yet. The idea is one of how long? How long is he waiting for? How much longer? I'm here. I'm keeping an eye. Where are they? And the answer is in verse 9. Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And so there are the horsemen coming. Medo-Persians are coming to attack. Camels and donkeys, um, I think, were a slightly later time. But um, they are coming, and this is what they've been watching. And so here is what is answered. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and the carved images of her gods he has shattered 
to the ground. Listen, Isaiah 21 verse 9 is a statement that is astonishingly important. It is a central statement in this whole section of the book of Isaiah. It is very, very important and it is it contains a huge theological weight about everything that Isaiah is saying in this section. How do I know that? Because it is quoted so many times. This, the falling of Babylon uh, is mentioned twice in the book of Revelation. Uh, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to be as brief as I can. Um, Revelation chapter 14 and verse 8. Revelation 14 and verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Revelation 18 and verse 2. And he, uh, we'll go from verse 1. Another angel coming out from heaven, having great authority, the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out in a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. Where did we read that? Isaiah. And a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. You see, when I interpreted those birds and those beasts as demons in Babylon, in Isaiah, John agreed with me. I'm in good company. Just saying. So yes, for the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth has grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Look, even there in Revelation at the very end, other nations have been drawn in to Babylon because of her power and have been corrupted by her immorality. And Babylon falling for the first time at the hands of the Medo-Persians has this cry. The cry comes from the, 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 the voice of the watchman that is appointed by Isaiah in the vision. And the watchman says, they're done. Babylon. Babylon the great. They're fallen. They're gone. And then this becomes a cry of encouragement. It becomes a cry of encouragement that is then reiterated when Babylon falls in Revelation 14. And then when, when we come to the end of the time of tribulation and the kingdom begins, then again there is the falling of Babylon because they're going to become this prison for demons in the, uh, the millennial kingdom. Now, why is it so significant that Babylon falls? You see that in the second half of the verse in Isaiah. Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Guys, I know I keep saying this, but it's something that we don't get in the Western world, and it has to be repeated again and again. The defeating of a foreign nation is the defeating of that nation's gods. The defeating of a nation is the defeating of a nation's God. And many people still recognize that today. Not so much in the Western world with our pragmatism, but it was something that was understood in biblical times. God is the one who raises up nations, and God is the one who brings down nations. He is sovereign over them all. But on a more immediate level, there are other gods that rule nations, that rise up nations, that destroy other nations, 
The Bible is not disputing that. The Bible is simply saying that our God oversees the whole thing. And so when Babylon falls, the images of her gods are shattered. Babylon is shattered and the gods of Babylon are shattered. That's why when this is repeated in Revelation, the falling of Babylon is associated with the imprisonment of demons. <coughs> because the demons are gods. They are the ones that the Babylonians worshipped. <coughs> And of course, the defeat of Babylon at the end is the defeat of the Babylonian living God, as it were, the Antichrist. And he will be defeated, and Satan will be defeated, and he will be locked away, and there will be this period of time when they can do no harm because of imprisonment. And Babylon is associated with demons. It was a nation that conquered other nations. It had more powerful gods. It had more powerful demons. And that nation has fallen and its gods have been defeated. That's why this verse is so central. And that's why it's repeated in the New Testament. The defeat of Babylon is the defeat of demons. The defeat of Babylon is the defeat of Satan. And I need you to understand this. This is not merely symbolic. If a nation is allowed to rise up that persecutes Christians, that is something demonic. If nations rise up and popularize immorality, that is something demonic. This nation is a nation that in its modern form was initially associated with the worship of God. It has become a nation that predominantly worships other gods. And we saw a few weeks back when we touched on Romans 1 in one of these passages of judgment that God is clearly, according to Romans 1, giving up this nation, giving it over, handing it over, saying you can go and be with the gods that you so desperately want to be with. You cannot separate nations immorality and demonic power. You cannot separate those things. To do so is unbiblical. It's contrary to scripture. Babylon was a nation that had powerful gods that we would call demons that allowed it to have power, to wield power and to be powerful and that power was used to popularize immorality and for that it is judged and for that it fell and it will fall again and it ultimately they will all fall because God is sovereign over them all and the warning to Israel and the warning to us is do not be seduced by the gods of Babylon. Do not be seduced by the gods of this age. Do not think that you can play with immorality. Do not think that you can side with, with politicians and nations and that somehow that's how God's going to win the war and that's what's going to happen. There is one way that things are going to change in this country or any other. God will decree it. That's how it's going to happen. And the way that we bring about change is we get on our knees and we worship the God who is sovereign. End of story. I think that the politicizing of faith in this country has been a terrible thing, broadly speaking. 
Yes, I will, be the, I will be the first in line to say when someone tries to imprison a Christian baker for refusing to bake a certain cake, get it to the Supreme Court and let's go to Caesar, as Paul would say. I'm, I'm that's totally fine and biblical. But we also have to understand that when it come, blow comes to blow and end comes to the end, that God is giving this nation over that the nation is worshipping other gods, though they wouldn't see it as such, and that the only hope for this nation is that God would intervene. And the work that we can do to make that happen is not done in the courtroom, it's not done in the voting booth. Not to say that we shouldn't vote, it's simply to say that the change will happen on our knees. And we need to ascertain that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We will not be seduced by the gods of this age. We will not be seduced by immorality. We will not think that things that we know from the scriptures are evil and wicked are okay just because the people around say they're okay. We will not be compromised. Why? Because we are not going to bow before Babylon because one day the watchman will shout out, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And we want to be on the right side of history to take a modern political phrase when that day comes. That's why. There's one thing left in this passage, in this oracle. Verse 10. Oh, my threshed and winnowed ones, what I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. Israel here is told something that they're having the pro their prophet share with them this thing that God is going to do. And they are described as my threshed and winnowed one. That is a two of the stages by which grains of wheat are removed that involves um, beating bashing, blowing, and separating. I guess when you're wheat and you're a stalk of wheat, you don't really feel anything, do you? But when you're a human being and there's some nugget of good in you, surrounded by a whole bunch of stuff you don't need, then to be beaten and knocked about and have it cut off and thrashed out and then or the chaff to be blown away, to just leave that grain, that nugget that needs to remain. That's a painful, painful process. And God says to Israel, I see your pain. I see your pain. Oh, threshed and winnowed one. Babylon has destroyed you. Assyria attacked you. Babylon's destroyed you. Babylon's now fallen, but you're still in pain. The end... At this point, we've seen the end. The end was chapters 13 through 19. But here, it's rough. And why? Because that nugget, that grain, needs to be found. You see, in the midst of an acknowledging of the suffering of Israel, there is a hint of the purpose. That God wants to get the goodness from Israel, that God wants to accomplish his, his purposes in Israel. God has got so much that he wants to do with each and every one of us. 
If you are a Christian, then you were chosen before the foundation of this world. You have astonishing value to God. Not in and of yourself, you're a rotten sinner, obviously, we get that. But he chose you and saved you, not, not by works, he saved you by faith, but he does say in Ephesians 2, he saved you for works. There are things that God, before the foundation of this world, before any of these nations were ever created, before any of this even began, there were things that God said, that's for him, that's for her. That gives us astonishing value as Christians. But we come stained with sin, burdened by our own selfishness, our own pride, our own agendas, our own misunderstandings. And so for us to be used by God to the extent he wants to use us, we have to be threshed and winnowed. God had a purpose for Israel. And every single time God said, don't do this, they seemed to do it. And every time he said, do this, they didn't do it. Isn't the classic Kaddish Barnea that we saw when we were in the book of Hebrews, where he says to them, right, you need to go into this land. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we're not doing that. They're big, they're big, scary. No, 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 we're not going. No, 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 no. And so God says, okay, judgment. You're not going to go into the land. Oh, no, 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 we're going to go in the land. No, no, you can't go in the land now. Oh, no, 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 don't worry, God, we got it. We're going into the land. And they go in the land and they get destroyed. That just sums up Israel's history. But you know the irony of it all? Is that Israel is going to be a light to the nations. That God will fulfill his purposes through Israel. And he will fulfill his purposes in us. But like them, we have to be threshed and winnowed. We have to go through stuff we don't want to go through. We have to be put through circumstances we wouldn't wish on our enemies. Why? Because he loves us and he has a plan for us. Look at this expression. I think this is really powerful. Oh my threshed and winnowed one. What I have heard from Yahweh, that's the name of God, of hosts, sovereign power over physical and spiritual realms. The God of Israel. You're my people. You're still my people. That's the message for us all in darkness, is it not? That no matter when, how much we do to screw up, no matter how many times we sin, no matter how many times we fall, no matter how difficult our circumstances are, we're still his. And he will still accomplish his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this oracle. Lord, may we learn from it. May we trust you. May you be one that we trust in, not in nations, not in powers, not in um, the ways of this world, but may we trust in you and your ways. May we not be tempted to place our trust anywhere else. May we bow before your sovereign hand, your sovereign might, knowing that not only are you great, not only are you majestic and powerful and holy and glorious, but you are good and we are your children. Amen.